I'm going to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And you'll remember that after I finished a major section in Revelation not too long ago, uh, I, I took a little bit of a break to give myself some time to really sink into the next section. Well, that's kind of what's happening right now. And I'm hoping uh, next Lord's Day to pick up our study of Revelation there in chapter 19, where we're just at the point where Jesus Christ is returning in all of his glory. We've been anticipating it. We've been talking about it for so long. And now we'll get to study that rich and glorious text. But this morning, to uh, guide our thoughts to the table, I wanted to focus in on this one passage of Scripture. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, I don't know if anybody reads Kipling's poetry anymore, but Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem that became famous. He wrote this in 1909. And it reads this way. It reads, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or be lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but not too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Now, not until you reach the last line of the poem, unless you've read this before or heard it, do you realize that the persona of the poem is a father addressing his son? But noticing that, we could reread the poem and think, ah, I can see the big picture now. This is a father sending his son out to be a man, to, to make his way in the world, expressing this joy that he's going out and this concern for him. Ironically, Rudyard Kipling more than likely wished he had that kind of relationship with his parents. His own parents largely neglected him, and he was sent away at age six to live with a lady who severely abused him. When he was asked years later by an aunt why he never told anyone about the ill treatment he was getting, he answered that children are wise enough to know what they are likely to get if they give away the secrets of the prison house before they are clear of it. So he never said anything. There's another observation though, that we can make about Kipling's poem. <clears throat> by all appearances, it's a loving guidance from a father to his son. But nowhere in this whole poem is the son's responsibility to God through the person of Jesus Christ mentioned. 
Now, that shouldn't surprise us. We know about Rudyard Kipling. He was always mysterious about what he really believed when it came to religion. In fact, the year before Kipling published this poem, uh, he referred to himself as a God-fearing Christian atheist. He always wanted to keep people guessing about what he really believed. So this is a great travesty. But we can give our children all of the best worldly wisdom. But if bringing the glory to God is not at the center of the wisdom we are giving to them, we have failed them. As Proverbs warns us twice, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And I would like to contrast this morning this famous piece of fatherly wisdom with wise advice from a father who knows God and knows the truth about salvation through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. In the Apostle John's first epistle, he often sounds very much like a father speaking lovingly to his children. In fact, it's pretty obviously uh, pretty obvious reading through the letter that John has great affection for the believers that he's writing to, and he thinks himself thinks of himself as a father writing to children. And, and the best part, he's not offering them mere worldly wisdom that leads to death. He's offering something eternal to them. He's offering them the words of life. John, in this epistle, is writing to first century believers in order to encourage their belief in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, he says, really did manifest himself on the earth as a genuine human being, despite what the false teachers are saying, he's telling them. And to encourage their confidence in the fact that they belong to God through faith in Christ and they possess eternal life. And he assures them that they would one day be united with the Lord so they need to remain pure from sin themselves as they wait for final salvation. And he's really concerned for them. So as this loving parent sending his children into a world where their beliefs are going to be challenged and they will be tempted to sin, John gives to them and he gives to us through this letter fatherly spiritual wisdom. If we read through 1 John, we see John urging children, walk in the light, chapter 1, verse 7. Do not hate your brother in Christ, but love him, chapter 2, verse 9. Do not love the world, 2.15. Abide in the truth of Christ, 2.24. Abide in Christ himself, 2.28. Purify yourself, chapter 3, verse 3. Make sure no one deceives you, 3.7. Do not be surprised if the world hates you, 3.13. Do not be gullible about false doctrine, 4.1. Love one another, 4.7. And then there is this admonition in the first two verses of John chapter 2, where I'd like us to focus our attention this morning. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You notice right away that he calls the believers little children, my little children. It's a term of endearment, a term of affection. I mean, you do this, right? We naturally give nicknames to our children when they're very little that signals a loving relationship with them. Sweetie, honey, 
buddy, sunshine, princess, little monster. (laughs) And you probably have a lot of others that came out of your family. When our youngest daughter, Emmeline, was a baby, her next oldest sister, Adrienne, who a lot of you know, uh, couldn't pronounce her name, Emmeline. So she would always say, lemon lime, you know, like the flavor. So we called Emmeline lemon for years. And we still do on occasion. And there's something intuitive about these little nicknames we give to children when we love them because we know that the reverse is true as well. If your parents ever call you by your full legal name, you know, just as it appears on your birth certificate, you know that you're in big trouble, right? Gregory John Stikes, I'm like, oh no, this is a legal proceeding and uh, I'm not going to escape. And, and so little children is this special term of endearment. And it's appropriate for John to use it of them. And I'll tell you why. First of all, the term little children indicates our relationship with God. We share a father-child relationship with the God of the universe who loved us and sent his son for us. When we trusted Christ for salvation, we entered into a new family. And it's a relationship where we can uh, grow used to that relationship. I mean, all, this, all the time we're hearing the phrase, we're children of God, we're a child of God, we're saved. We hear that phrase all the time. We can forget how remarkable it is that the Holy Creator receives us as his own little children. In fact, John, the author of this letter, still marvels at this relationship. He indicates that at the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It's not the exact same term. The term in chapter 2 is technia. That's the, 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 the name little children, which is a term of endearment. But this is uh, children. This is a different word, but it, it signifies this relationship that we should be called children of God. And he says, and so we are. This little phrase, what kind of, that you see there in the text, it represents a Greek word that people would use when they were awestruck by something. Like when Jesus calmed the storm and the disciples said, you remember, what kind of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? What kind of love is this? That simple phrase, what kind of, is the same phrase. What kind of love is this? that the Father calls us his children. And then he adds for emphasis, kai es men, and we are, is what that says. Wow, John says. I hope we don't ever stop wondering at that relationship. John addresses his readers as little children, not merely because he loves them, because they're, because they're, but because they're God's children. God loves them as children. But there's another reason I think the term of endearment is appropriate It's appropriate because the term little children indicates our tendency to behave like children. And how do children behave? Proverbs 22, 15 tells us foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And that is not intellectual foolishness. It's not stupidity. It's moral foolishness. It's being warned to go one direction, but going the opposite direction instead. Did you ever do that when you were a child? Do you have children that do that kind of thing? Little children we know, can hear the parental guidance of, our, of their heavenly father and still go in the wrong direction, still refuse to, be, to, to do what they're being told to do. A little child's tendency is to stray from the path. If you don't think so, you've never been a child or you've never had children. 
And one of the ways God disciplines and encourages us to get back on the path is through the Holy Word of God. In fact, that's exactly what John is, is doing in this letter called 1 John. As we read the letter, this word breathed out by our Heavenly Father, it encourages us to stay on or get back on the path of God's will. He speaks to us this way as children. So the term indicates our relationship with God and it indicates our tendency to behave like children, but also it indicates that we are going to grow up someday. Children aren't meant to stay children. They're not going to remain children. The goal in rearing children is not that they stay children, but they move on to adulthood. The goal for us as little children of God is that we become more mature. Can I say it this way? Like our older brother, Jesus Christ. And as we walk with God, as we respond positively to this loving instruction and correction, we need to be more like our Savior, who we are joint heirs with in the body of Christ. And we never have to worry about whether we're going to get there, if we're ever going to grow up like him, whether we're ever going to be fully mature. Because no matter where we are in our growth, one day sin will fall away and we will be like Jesus Christ. First John chapter 3 is exactly what John says. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, that is when we grow up, has not yet appeared. Sometimes when you're rearing children, you're like, is this kid ever going to grow up? Have you ever thought that as a parent? No hands raising. It has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. That's a promise. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, because we will be like our eternal older brother, Jesus, someday we have this, berser- this burning desire to be like him now. So we are God's little children with a tendency to wander, but with that great hope of maturing to be like Christ. Now, back to our main text. What does John say to us as little children? He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, what does this mean? I am writing so you may not sin. How can writing to somebody cause them not to sin? Well, we're not going to take time to look at this text because there's a lot in there that we would have to unpack. But if we just go back, if you have the, the scriptures open there, you just go back to verse, uh, the verses in chapter one, you'll see that there's a bigger context here. John has been warning them that if they persist in sin, this indicates that they are not the children of God at all. Because God is light, he says. And if we are walking in the light, then uh, we have reason to think that we're with God. But if we're not walking in the light, we don't have reason to think that we belong to God, who is light. And he puts this very bluntly. He says back in verse 5 of chapter 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, not ever, no sin at all. In other words, this is a warning to these little children not to make, commit sin, to always do what is right, to walk in the light rather than to dark, in darkness. And that's what he means. He wants these words of warning to have their effect 
to cause them to resist temptation to sin because sin is rebellion against the holy God. Sin is the reason the world is going to judgment. We look out at the world every week and we see the the crime and the, the death and the destruction and the false ideas. Remember, it's all because we're living in a fallen world and it's fallen because of the effect of sin. Sin is the problem. And the scripture says sin has to be punished because all sin is ultimately an offense to the heavenly father who created us. Romans 6, 23, the payment for sin is death. Ezekiel 18, 20, the one who sins shall die. Not just physical death, but the eternal death, a death of separation from God in a place of eternal punishment. Hell is real. And we'll be sure to see that when we get a little further in Revelation, just a little further, one of the most horrifying texts in all of Scripture. But John isn't done yet. You see what he says next? But if anyone does sin, and they will, children wander away from the path. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's as if John is saying, to little children, look, the standard is don't sin. Don't do that. Stay away from there. Don't go there. Don't say that. Sin brings death. Sin brings darkness. Sin ultimately brings hardship and sadness. Don't sin. But if you do sin, don't despair because there is hope for you. I want you to notice three different terms that John uses to describe this hope. First, he says, we have an advocate. And then later on, he refers to Jesus as the righteous one. And then he says in verse 2, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And I would summarize these verses by saying that John encourages us as little children by promising that if we sin, we still have hope in the ongoing ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who presents us before the Father in these three ways. He presents us as our advocate, as our righteous one, and as our propitiation. And I want to say just a word or two about each of these ways that we are presented before God this morning. First of all, Jesus presents us before the Father as our advocate. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and that advocate is Jesus Christ. An advocate is a person who helps you, especially by commending you to someone or some group of people who have doubts about you, who wonder why they should accept you, It's often used as a legal term. In certain cases, when someone is brought before the court for judgment, he may bring an advocate who pleads for him. Look, he's really not a bad guy. He's not a bad guy. He's he's really trying, Your Honor. Uh, He's making great progress. He's really committed to doing the right thing. Look what he's done so far. He's really trying to make restitution here. Don't go so hard on him, Your Honor. That's an advocate. Many of you are familiar with the Greek word, actually, that's translated here. It's the word paraclete. Do you remember hearing about that when you've studied theology, the paraclete? The only other times we see the word paraclete in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is speaking about a paraclete, a helper, an advocate. But that advocate is the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks of him four times uh, in chapters 14, 15, and 16. 
And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus to the world through the ministry of the disciples. Jesus says of the Spirit in John 15, 26, but when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit will bear witness about me, Jesus says. In other words, he will commend the person and work of Jesus to those who wonder why they should accept him. So in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is an advocate for Jesus, presenting him a righteous savior to a world who desperately needs him, which means when we go out and we have opportunity to share the gospel, if the spirit is at work, he is an advocate for Jesus Christ. You wonder, why would somebody want to believe this? Well, why did you believe it? It wasn't because of anything you did, anything you were convinced of. The Spirit was at work opening your eyes, shedding the blindness. And so the Spirit in John's gospel presents Jesus to a, righteous, to, to a, a lost world who desperately needs him. But here in the letter of 1 John, Jesus is the advocate for those who believe in him, presenting them to the Father who must demand absolute holiness. When we go before the Father's throne, we are welcomed to come there. We're we're told in Hebrews to come with confidence because Jesus is our advocate. So when we come before the throne of God confessing our sins and God were to ask, why do you have a right to be here? The answer is Jesus Christ. He's really, and, 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 and what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, here's, here's this person. He's really not a bad guy. She's really trying. He's making great progress. She's really committed to doing the right thing. Is that what Jesus says to the Father? Is that going to make a difference to a holy God? No, because Paul assures us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's nothing in and of ourselves that Jesus could point to that would give us even a thread of hope that we can escape divine wrath because of sin. Nothing. So what does our advocate do? He shows the Father what he himself has already done on our behalf. He sets himself forth as evidence, his own body that he gave in his own place, the blood that he shed on the cross in death that takes the place of our death. He pleads for us, not on the basis of anything we have done, but upon the basis of what he has done on our behalf. Now, why is Jesus able to advocate for us? Why does the Father listen to him? The answer points us to another way Jesus presents us before the Father. Jesus presents us before the Father as our righteous one. But if anyone does not sin, we have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous, that is the righteous one. In other words, he is the very definition of righteousness, the very embodiment of righteousness. Think of the absurdity if someone came to advocate for an accused person who himself, the advocate, was a convicted criminal. Maybe he's standing before the judge in an orange jumpsuit. I just let my imagination run wild here with this idea. Your Honor, you know I'm, I'm, I'm serving a sentence right now for this crime, so believe me when I tell you this guy's okay. You know? uh, maybe he's even saying you know, he couldn't have committed this crime. You know, he was terrible uh, at it. That would never fly. I would hope, okay? I mean, sometimes we wonder. But in order for someone to truly advocate for a person who stands accused, his own character needs to be beyond reproach. 
But who would have the character to stand before the holy throne of God? It would have to be someone who had never sinned, someone who never once, once acted contrary to God's will. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. John says in chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, that is God, the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, our advocate, is also our righteous one who never knew sin, no sin whatsoever, so that as a result of our union with him, we become righteous like him in the sight of God, righteous as righteous as Jesus, united in him. We can scarcely believe that's true, but that's what the Bible teaches us. The key to this relationship is in the words in him. We become the righteousness of God. We don't stand apart from him. We don't stand before God on our own. We stand before him in Christ. And that gives us the great hope because the only way that God would declare to us to be unrighteous and unfit to dwell in his presence, the only way he would say, you don't belong here, is if Jesus himself were found to be unrighteous. And he is certainly the eternal righteous one. But finally, there's one other way that Jesus presents us before the Father when we come before him confessing our sins. First, Jesus presents us as our advocate, defending us, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done on our behalf. And second, he can do this because he is absolutely righteous. He has become our righteousness. But finally, Jesus presents us before the Father as our propitiation. He says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. I, I hope that we all learn to appreciate the biblical terminology of our salvation. Here is one of those words that maybe we don't throw around in regular conversation during the week, but it has a great deal to do with our salvation. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God, which in turn makes God propitious or favorable or agreeable toward those with whom he was angry before. You see, God does not judge sin dispassionately or detached or void of emotion. Well, you sin. Therefore, you get this punishment. You trusted the son, you get eternal life. Not at all. The Bible depicts God as very passionate. Passionately loving his children, but also passionately angry about sin. Full of wrath. God is never sitting on the fence. He is full direction. Full on direction where he needs to be. And he is angry about sin. John three twenty six in the very chapter of the verse we all know, God so loved the world, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is already there on him. 
And the only way that the wrath can be turned away is if someone will bear the brunt of that wrath, receive that wrath by bearing the punishment. And that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. God took out his wrath on his son, satisfying that wrath so that he could turn it away from us and be favorable to us, propitious toward us. By the way, this does not mean that God was throwing some divine temper tantrum in heaven because of sin, and Jesus stepped in and calmed him down, so now he's loving toward us instead. That is a caricature, a, a false picture of this doctrine. Because God is always a loving God. He doesn't shift from lovingness to anger. But God cannot overlook sin. So what does a loving God do? He himself provided the propitiation in order to satisfy his own wrath. We see this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus himself took the wrath of God on our behalf. He stepped in and took the punishment that we ourselves deserved. He is the propitiation for our sins, but this was something the whole Godhead did for us because of the love for God. And he did it not only for our sins, but also, as it says, for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation of Jesus Christ has a worldwide impact. The wrath of God is satisfied for all sin and that satisfaction is available to anyone who will put their trust in the Savior. So this gives us, as little wandering children, great hope. When it comes to our sin, Jesus doesn't have to do anything new. He simply points to what he has already done what, is already, what he's already done to become on our behalf an advocate and our righteousness and our propitiation. He is before the Father's throne right now, this moment, representing us. So as believers with the Holy Spirit, we struggle to remain pure, to resist sin, to stay on the path of God's will. But when we sin, we go to the throne of God as little children, broken, but full of hope, resting in the forgiveness that he has already been, that has already been provided for us through Jesus Christ. That's something to rejoice in. That's what the table points us to. The bread, the body of Christ given for us, the cup, the blood which he shed when he sacrificed himself on our behalf. Horatius Bonar said, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can cease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Praise God for what he has done for us in Christ. And if you're a believer in Christ and you are walking in obedience with him, which means you're coming to him and confessing 
falling away and coming back and, and resting in this wonderful hope. We invite you as the uh, elements are passed to partake of them and to so celebrate with us this morning as we identify with all that Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.